thank you very much for coming along. Had closed-circuit television systems been as widely used in retail premises 30-odd years ago as they are today, grainy film footage would verify that on the afternoon of the 23rd of February, 1982, the 18-year-old Simon Armitage was a customer at the co-op mini-supermarket on the corner of Great South Sea Street and Elm Street in the city of Portsmouth. The date is significant, Shrove Tuesday, a respected and observed event in the household of my upbringing, though more for culinary than re religious reasons. On that particular Shrove Tuesday, I was 250 miles away from where I grew up, a homesick geography undergraduate at Portsmouth Polytechnic, about to indulge in a large helping of comfort food. Like most students of the day, I was something of a survivalist chef and not familiar with the preparation of even the most basic dishes, which explains why I purchased an expensive sachet of pancake mix. Back in the 40-watt gloom of a squalid bedsit, disappointment and humiliation went hand in hand once I'd finally deciphered the small print on the reverse of the packet, which read, just add milk, eggs, and a pinch of salt. In other words, I'd bought a few ounces of flour. The word just was especially annoying, as if it were a nonchalant or capricious afterthought rather than an integral part of the recipe. And the pinch of salt delivered a kind of subtextual ironic insult, the pinch being the painful nip and lingering bruise of having been conned, the salt being of the hypothetical kind to be rubbed into the open wounds of ignorance and naivety. So even if I could have scraped together the money to buy a pint of milk, six eggs when I only needed a couple, and a canister of Saxa, by that stage, I had neither the energy, enthusiasm, or self-esteem to traipse back across South Sea Common. Thus, the delicious-looking product on the shiny cover of the packet went unrealized, a packet that, for all I know, might still be sitting at the back of a shelf in some grotty student dive, less Shrove Tuesday and more Ash Wednesday by now or has been misidentified and snorted. <laughs> the Ash Wednesday reference I have dropped in as a cheap way of segueing into T.S. Eliot, because in the early years of my poetic self-education, I did from time to time file some of his work in the pancake mix folder. Frustrated by a poetry which either deliberately or unintentionally failed to incorporate key ingredients, the omission of which said a great deal about the poem's intended audience, a recurring theme of mine during this series of lectures. Of course, there were always the notes, as in notes on the wasteland, supplied with the poem. But weren't they just a paper chase in their own right, leading to more unanswered questions? Why was Marvell's to his coy mistress acknowledged as the pre-echo to line 196, but at my back from time to time I hear, but not to line 185, but at my back in a cold blast I hear? And even if I knew that Lac Le Mans was Lake Geneva, on the shores of which Eliot convalesced in late 1921, or even that Le Mans is another word for lover, or paramour, didn't by the waters of Le Mans I sat down and wept, merit a quick CF Psalm 137 to point us in the direction of the rivers of Babylon. Eliot famously pronounced that meaning in a poem might be provided much as the imaginary burglar 
is always provided with a nice piece of meat for the house dog. Though that statement itself reads like something of a diversionary sausage, especially to readers who consider that the ineffable and transcendental properties of a poem can only work in harmony with their literal and comprehensible counterparts. Across the years, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the divide or separation between reader and writer and thought about it again a few months ago after taking a friend to a poetry reading, a friend who reads a great deal of literature of which poetry is only a small proportion. Those introductions and explanations between the poems, why don't they put them in the book, he wanted to know. On behalf of the Poets' Union, I trotted out the standard justifications. That the book is a more considered environment than the recital, allowing readers to encounter poems at their own pace. That by supplying context, which in any event can only be partial, a poet is operating in an autocratic rather than democratic manner by restricting the interpretative liberties of the reader. And that anecdotal asides are not really offered as elucidatory insights, but as a relief from the effort of attending to intense and unfamiliar formulations of language. Yeah, I think they should put them in the book, he said, unconvinced. <laughs> or, better still, in the poems. Peter Bruegel the Elder's 1559 allegorical fantasia, The Fight Between Carnival and Lent, depicts a semi-pantomimic clash between the forces of excess and the forces of austerity. The carnival's chief representative riding into the fray on a beer barrel, wielding a long skewer with a pig's head on the end and wearing a meat pie as a hat. Coming at him from the other side, dragged along on a crude and uncomfortable looking trolley is Lady Lent sallow and bony, two scrawny fish on an outstretched peel. The battleground is a market square with a well in the middle signifying some sort of neutral location or perhaps the winning objective. If I were to mischievously repopulate the painting with opposing forces from the world of poetry, the scene would present a symbolic conflict between excess and parsimony, between openness and disguise, and metaphorically, between those who combine milk, eggs, salt, and flour in the one product, and those who don't. Wordsworth was an all-inclusive poet. I might even have him in the front rank, charging into the dispute, sporting a juicy pork chop on the front of his chariot. And as evidence, I offer his untitled, self-reflexive, prefatory sonnet, Nuns Fret Not at Their Convent's Narrow Room. The poem was composed in that period when the poet's mind was turning towards the expanding manifesto-style remarks, prefacing the lyrical ballads editions, remarks considered by some as patronizing and condescending in their idealization of the uneducated classes. To Wordsworth's detractors, Nun's fret not reverberates with the same supercilious attitudes and early cultural appropriation they detect in the lyrical ballads project as a whole. Nowhere in the letters or the biographical accounts is there any evidence of the great bard canvassing the opinions of nuns or hermits regarding the limited geometry of their accommodation or the restrictions of their callings? Only in romantic representation was spinning and weaving anything other than a laborious and underpaid activity. And so far as he has authority to speak on behalf of the bee regarding its likes and dislikes, the most that can be allowed 
is that Wordsworth has successfully used the insect to ventriloquize elements of his argument. As to his celebration of confinement, it makes an interesting contrast with Terence Hayes's latter-day articulation, describing the American sonnet as part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. But if the poet's case is flimsy and his evidence somewhat conscripted, the execution of his reasoning, particularly in the second half of the poem, is priceless. Possibly through that quiet transition into personal experience and private conviction, always safer ground in a Wordsworth poem. Interesting to note that in the earliest known draft of the poem, written in Dorothy's hand at a speed suggesting contemporaneous dictation, those weavers at the loom are something, something, something until the day of doom. The bees that murmur by the hour in foxglove bells have travelled on a flight path from Bath to Wells, and the sonnet's scanty plot of ground, the best phrase in the poem, was formerly the little sonnet's humble ground. Whatever you think about Wordsworth, he knew how to revise. <laughs> or Dorothy did. So by the time the poem is written up in an edition presented to Coleridge to accompany him on one of his frenetic Mediterranean jaunts, again in Dorothy's hand, but this time with greater care, it has achieved the wording we now recognise as its finished arrangement. But within the, both within the poem and elsewhere, Wordsworth often pondered and reflected upon the 14-line poem, poem often pondered and reflected upon the 14-line form, the key by which Shakespeare unlocked his heart. Here he is, pondering and reflecting. In November 1802, in a letter probably to Charles Lamb, he comments that Milton's sonnets are distinguished by simplicity and unity of object and aim and undisfigured by false or vicious ornaments. Despite some misgivings, he goes on to applaud the way Milton's musicality has an energetic and varied flow of sound, crowding into narrow room more of the combined effect of rhyme and blank verse than can be done by any other kind of verse I know of. That reuse or prior use of the phrase narrow room reads like a confirmation of Wordsworth's paralleling of physical geography and poetic form. And in January of the previous year, in a letter to the Whig statesman Charles James Fox, accompanying his gift of the second edition of Lyrical Ballads, the poet makes a more direct association between honest toil, limited space, and the consequences for language. Speaking up on behalf of small independent proprietors in the north of England, he says, their little tract of land serves as a kind of permanent rallying point for their domestic feelings, as a tablet upon which they are written, which makes them objects of memory in a thousand instances when they would otherwise be forgotten. More pertinently in the context of this lecture, by 1833, in a letter to the anthologist and editor Alexander Dice, Wordsworth has revised his thinking on the sonnet so that instead of looking at this composition as a piece of architecture, making a whole out of three parts, I have been much in the habit of preferring the image of an orbicular body a sphere or a dewdrop. So something patterned and regulated on the one hand, yet impressionistic and equivocal on the other. And this I find instructive because Wordsworth's own sonnets, including his sonnet of sonnets, Nuns Fret Not, 
are astonishingly transparent at the textual level, or as I have categorized them previously, inclusive. Everybody, even the semi-literate payroll of William's own writings, know what a nun is, ditto a hermit, a maid, a prison, and a foxglove. And even if some readers might not be able to pinpoint the exact location of Furnace Fells, the reference is fairly self-explanatory. So the orbicular and spherical elements, those aspects magnified and manipulated through the lens of a drop of liquid, are presumably provided by the form, a form which arranges language in accordance with rhythm and positions words in accordance with sound, the consequences of which, no matter how much we think we know about the effect of such qualities on the senses and the imagination, are ultimately ineffable. A monumental generalization. Back in the day, most poetry was constructed using a pattern or formula of some type. Over time, form came to be ditched, mainly because it represented the old farts with their stuffy directives and controlling regimes. They had to be overthrown, that lot, and tearing up the rule book was a necessary stage in the revolution. But form provided mystery in poetry. It brought ritual and ceremony to writing, without which writing was prose. So a new type of mystery had to be developed to replace form's complex and enigmatic effects. And it emerged as concealment. Concealment of meaning, concealment of motive, concealment of reference, concealment of reason. It had always been there, but now it gained primacy. The hidden codes in poetry, once the preserve of unspoken line breaks and subconscious structures and indefinable musicality, were replaced by withheld knowledge, suppressed information and camouflaged intent. I don't expect everyone to agree with that assertion, and I know there are thousands of examples to contradict contradict the logic, but as a broad trend, as a vague drift, I believe that to be the case. And if the Wordsworthian approach is to be located at one end of the spectrum, on the inclusive side of things, then on the exclusive side, toward the right-hand margin of the Bruegel painting, we find a poetry so frugal and miserly in its patency it might even be described as homeopathic, containing within it only subatomic quantities of its actual purpose. An efficacious remedy to some, snake oil to others. Part one of W.S. Graham's poem, Approaches to How They Behave, reads, What does it matter if the words I choose, in the order I choose them in, Go out into a silence I know nothing about, there to be let in and entertained and charmed out of their master's orders. And yet, I would like to see where they go and how, without me, they behave. In part, it acknowledges one of the great anxieties of modern poetry, as articulated through modern criticism that no matter what control poets attempt to exert on the page, ownership of and power over any text rests ultimately with the reader. And readers are largely unpredictable in their responses. It's an anxiety that has encouraged some poets to back away from direct intentionality and to treat language as being wholly enigmatic like music or colour. In doing so, they have aimed for response and effect rather than comprehension and understanding. Their endeavours 
always culminating in failure of one sort or another, I-M-H-O. Once language has been acquired by virtue of its definitions and its usefulness as a communication tool, it cannot, except through neurological illness or blunt trauma injury of some kind, be unlearned. It's like trying to open the fridge door before the light comes on. Illumination is a function of its programming. I won't be discussing that kind of work today, but I do want to look at a handful of attested and affirmed contemporary poems by a handful of praised and decorated contemporary poets, poems and poets of currency, shall we say, and to figure out where they lie on the Shrove Tuesday, Ash Wednesday axis. The poetry of Sinead Morrissey is, on first appearance at least, outward-facing and public-spirited, by which I mean her poem Collier, to take a random example, is about a collier, the poet's collier grandfather, as it happens, as she acknowledges in line one, the directness of her expression throughout giving us every reason to be confident that this is her actual grandfather rather than a character of literary fiction. Likewise, when her poem Perfume opens with, my great Auntie Winnie may as well have spotted a crack in the floor of Nottingham's Odeon cinema, it's fair to say that we know where we are. Many of her poems have a talky, conversational quality, a quality emphasized by her public readings, and at page level, most are organized by shape, I would suggest, rather than form in the strict sense of the word. Her poem, Jigsaw, from a 2013 collection, Parallax, conforms pretty closely to that description, i.e., when we learn in line one that the royal children have been sent a gift, we're right to assume that gift is the jigsaw of the title. Just as line two, a map of Europe from 1766, provides useful geographical and historical exposition, as well as announcing the system of irregularly cadenced, off-rhyming couplets by which the piece will proceed. Some of those rhymes are little more than the same letter at the end of lines, though for sensitive readers like you and I, they are, of course, as keenly felt as a petit pois beneath the layered mattresses of a sleepless princess. The poem's meaning if I can put it in such crude terms, is on a par with the comprehensibility of its syntax. As a toy for the offspring of the ruling elite, this jigsaw map with its many geopolitical inferences is a metaphor for the world they'll inherit. The Earth's surface a game or puzzle to be dismantled and rearranged according to preference or prejudice. Being a thing of borders and territories, the map also speaks to predicaments and crises of a contemporary nature, and a note of gender politics is sounded via the indirect reference to male primogeniture. Possibly because her poems often focus on actual things, places, works of art, scientific phenomena, Morrissey has taken to including a page or so of notes at the back of a collection. The notes from Parallax relating to six poems, on five occasions describing the means by which the poems were inspired. No note, though, on Jigsaw, which I find odd, since presumably it was inspired by John Spilbury's 1766 dissected map of Europe divided into its kingdoms. 
sometimes credited as the first ever puzzle of its type. Perhaps Morrissey saw it in the flesh as one of the prized possessions of the National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, or just encountered the exhibit online next to a commentary explaining how Spilsbury marketed his jigsaw maps as educational playthings to aristocrats whose children need to learn geography, vital preparation for their future roles in governing the British Empire. There's no obligation to credit source material in a poem, of course, and a poem certainly functions without any supporting commentary. Also, the poem is about a puzzle, so why shouldn't it be a little bit puzzling? And just because Simon Armitage, the underqualified cartographer, feels that the poem would be enhanced by a mention of the original jigsaw map, doesn't mean that everyone else will feel the same. Still, I'm curious about the moment and the reasoning that took place in that moment when the poet decided to withhold disclosure, when she thought, no, I'm not telling them that. Let's look at another poem, Receiving the Dead, from Morris's next collection, On Balance. Again, a piece that extrapolates significance from an antique artifact, but now of an acoustic rather than visual nature. This time there is an accompanying note which reads, when Guglielmo Marconi invented the radio in 1898, he was convinced that this new technology was the perfect medium for picking up the voices of the dead. Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla were two other famous believers in electronic voice phenomena, brackets EVP. Let me begin by saying how engaging I found this poem when I first read it and how curious and haunting it's become with every subsequent reading. In fact, other than those involved in its preparation for publication and of course the author herself, I wonder if I've read it more times and more closely than anyone else in the universe. And it's through those close readings that I've turned my attention to some of the poem's more unexplained aspects, such as why the poem is presented in the form of a monologue from Sherlock Holmes addressing his more practically-minded crime-solving partner, beginning with the catchphrase, Elementary Watson. The answer I arrived at might have something to do with this. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was an enthusiastic believer in all things paranormal and in the idea that the dead could communicate with the living. In April 1934, four years after Doyle's death, the clairvoyant Noah Zerdin hosted a, recording, a recorded seance at the Aeolian Hall in New Bond Street and the ethereal voice we've just heard is said to be that of Doyle himself, talking to us from the other side through the medium of EVP, or instrumental transcommunication. I can't tell what he's saying, though I don't think his ghostly mutterings 
are among the italicized phrases in part two of the poem, offered as examples of the phenomena. The first of which is, you are being watched, my little Friedel. I assume that isn't a reference many people here will get. In fact, I'd be surprised if anyone in this large hall, average IQ notwithstanding, knows the source of the quote, given that the internet throws up numerous pages devoted to the former Blackburn Rovers, Aston Villa, Tottenham Hotspur and Liverpool goalkeeper Brad Friedel before locking onto the required information. According to The Spirit Book, the encyclopedia of clairvoyance, channeling and spirit communication, the Swedish film director, portrait painter and EVP pioneer Friedrich Jürgensen was playing a recording of Birdsong one day in 1959 when he heard a man's voice in the background. He listened carefully a number of times and was then further surprised to make out the sound of his deceased mother's voice saying in German, Friedrich, you are being watched. Friedel, my little Friedel, can you hear me? I can't attribute the other quotes in the poem to any specific source and suppose them to be made up. I was interested to learn, and again after following several false leads, that the comedian Ada Jones's rendition of Alfred Solomon's All She Gets From The Iceman Is Ice is recorded on a wax cylinder and released on the Edison label. Ooh. Only Iceman is a nice man, but just one thing is sure. There's something in his business that affects his temperature. <laughs> oh, love is such a funny thing, as I found out once or twice. All you get from the Iceman is ice, ice, ice. <laughs> if only the song had been the lass of Orgrim. I might have heard the plaintive strains of the deceased Michael Fury singing to Greta Conroy in the closing section of Joyce's The Dead, thus petitioning Morris's literary ancestors into the bargain. But maybe that would have been too easy. Sherlock takes up the argument again in part three of the poem mentioning at one point the distance between Signal Hill and Rathlin, before rising to the Heaney-esque conclusion that even as pure air, pure interruption, those voices are wholly literate and equivalent to language in its given state, in which I hear Heaney's The Given Note his poem about a musical refrain transcribed from the wind, about hearing an air in the air. Wordsworth's Bath to Wells draft seems to imply that Furnace Fells was little more than a necessary rhyme for foxglove bells, whereas Morris's locations are significant. Rathlin being Rathlin Island, presumably, to and from where Marconi experimented with wireless transmission, and Signal Hill being Signal Hill on Canada's eastern distal point, presumably, the place at which the first ever transatlantic radio communication was received, three clicks representing the letter S in Morse code, though inconveniently for the connective purposes of the poem, they were sent from Paul Dew in Cornwall. As with Jigsaw, perhaps we must allow for unresolvable quandaries and unanswerable questions in a piece in which voices come to us from beyond the grave. And if we're looking for clues, the poem calls back to the collection's epigraph. Here men had ranted on radio. Part of a quote from Mayakovsky's Brooklyn Bridge. But in terms of the more recherche moments in these two Morrissey poems, and in poetry generally, 
To what purpose? Are the references planted, i.e. deliberately buried along the path of literary detectorists who will happily unearth and examine them? Are they of a personal nature, deployed to the private satisfaction of the poet only? Is there a belief on the part of the poet that the references are explained through context? Or an assumption that a 21st century poem will not just be casually read, but studied and analysed. Is intrigue the aim? Are we being educated here? Do opaque allusions operate as a form of entry qualification or club membership by which the ignorant and uninformed are kept outside the door? And what value do we assign to those moments in a poem we don't properly understand? Are they vital to a poem's operation or optional extras we can take or leave? I should point out that I haven't devised those questions as a cheap rhetorical device by which I then outline my own opinion in the form of ready-made answers. Neither is this a call for dumbing down in poetry. I simply ask them on behalf of an art form seen by many as impossible and whose USP, its unique selling point, is its unique lack of sales. The British artist Helen Chadwick is identified as the presiding spirit behind Joe Shapcott's 2010 collection of mutability. On the same acknowledgements page, she also pays tribute to doctors and staff at Hereford County Hospital, to whom the book owes everything. So given that Chadwick and Shapcock were both born in 1953, and that Chadwick died aged 42, were guided from the outset towards a biographical connection between poet and sculptor and as the volume unfolds towards an alliance of an artistic nature. Shelley's mutability isn't directly attributed, though his deduction that naught may endure but mutability provides an implicit watermark to each page. Ditto Wordsworth's sonnet of the same title. The poem Piss Flower is of mutability's final poem, a singularised and personalised response to Chadwick's early 90s work, Piss Flowers, whereby Chadwick made casts of the interior hollows formed by warm urine after herself and her partner had peed into mounds of Canadian snow. Less concerned or at any rate less satisfied with the effect of her outpourings on the ground. By force of imagination, Shapcott rises geezer-like from the surface, signing off with an ebullient and gleefully exhibitionist gesture, no matter how temporary. Given the earlier attribution, there's no obscurity or sleight of hand being practiced here at least in terms of external references and anchor points. It makes for a clear and self-contained set piece, one rich in insinuation and feeling, a poem that performs a mischievous act of joie de vivre in the context of literature's ephemerality, the, imp the impermanence of existence and the insubstantial nature of the human body. In fact, in many ways, even though the poem wouldn't exist without the original sculpted forms, it feels to have overthrown them, or transcended them, we might say, in relation to the elevation Shapcock claims to achieve in those final two stanzas. Poems like this, with their brevity and apparent simplicity, remind me, if I ever need reminding, of the startling power of controlled thinking presented as contained language. Piss flower 
consists of two-dimensional black shapes against a white background in a space not much bigger than a playing card. Yet to me, this ostensibly straightforward construction outperforms the work which inspired it, inadvertently making Chadwick's enameled bronze castings, fabricated at significant expense and via a huge effort of labour and process, I imagine, seem contrived or convoluted by comparison. Forty poems earlier in the same book, the poem The Oval Pool is also acknowledged as referring directly or indirectly to Chadwick's work. In this case to The Oval Court, the centrepiece of her first solo exhibition held in 1986 at the Institute of Contemporary Arts under the title On Mutability. On this occasion, however, the relationship between poem and artwork is more dependent, yet less tangible, and therefore less satisfying, I'd argue. Chadwick is an important artist, but not by any means a household name. Contemporary poetry, of course, is not a household subject, by and large, so perhaps there's an equivalence of enterprise here. And it's also true that being or not being a household name very much depends on whose door we enter. But that, I suppose, is my point, and raises from me a question about my responsibilities as a reader. I can certainly react to the poem as it exists on the page, deriving feeling and meaning from its surreal descriptions of time and place, and enjoying sections that read like reports of psychedelic or hallucinogenic experiences. But something's missing, and for me that something only materialised once I'd gone online and discovered that the Oval Court is the name given to a fully decorated room within the On Mutability exhibition, with Shapcott's The Oval Pool referring to the ovoid platform in the middle of that room on which five gold balls are positioned, apparently representing the fingertips of a divine hand. On Google Images and its associated pages, I can then see how the plants and animals floating or flying alongside photocopied images of Chadwick herself form a sort of 12-section zodiac come celestial or oceanic map. And by holding poem and image side by side, either literally or figuratively, Shapcott's poetic monologue is activated. The poet inserting herself into the artwork and channeling Chadwick's concerns. Of course, some aspects of the poem operate capably on their own, but other elements rely so heavily on the originating image, they become like puns without their punning counterparts, or like metaphors with only one half of the comparison on display. For example, in the second half of line six, which refers to photographs on the walls of the Oval Court depicting Chadwick in tears, and in the repeated use of the word copy, not just a conceptual element within the poem, but a direct reference to one of the techniques by which the artwork was constructed. Auden's Musée de Beaux-Arts is often the go-to poem in discussions of ekphrastic poetry and presents a solid template. For example, in its philosophical contemplation of both the general and the particular via that orchestrated transition across its two stanzas, and in its direct, no-nonsense, though potentially incorrect, naming of the painter and painting at the beginning of the second verse, and because it deals with a famous painting, allowing the text of the poem to operate simultaneously with a familiar image of 
the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive, delicate ship which sailed calmly on. In fact, in some ways, it could be argued that the poem takes something of a belt and braces approach, telling us things that we already know or using poetry to provide unnecessary subtitles to the image. Some 20 years later, William Carlos Williams would write Landscape with the Fall of Icarus about the same picture, observing how the same splash happened unsignificantly off the coast and summarizing the event with the startlingly mundane, this was Icarus drowning. If Williams' ambition was to strike a note of lexical banality, then the poem must be judged a personal triumph. The previous 19 lines being little more than brief and or bland descriptions of the artwork's visual narrative. So perhaps the trite linguistics were designed to undermine the grand traditions of the old masters and the lofty didacticism of their high art. We could also credit Williams for recognizing that in a humdrum diminutive and skeletal poem like this, relatively conspicuous terms such as pageantry or tingling or concerned are enough to mirror the small yet important moments of detail within the less dramatic landscape of the painting. But the bigger point here is that both the Auden and the Williams poems, in different and similar ways, are of the all-inclusive variety. Flour, egg, milk, pinch of salt. No assumption on the part of the poet about what the reader might happen to have in the pantry. What complexities exist reside elsewhere, in the staging of arguments, for example, or in the shaping of the poems on the page, or in Auden's case, in the rhymes. It isn't by any means unusual to find in published books poems that were commissioned by outside agencies. This might seem like a relatively recent and somewhat vulgar phenomenon. We probably think less about Wordsworth's I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud if we discovered it was sponsored by Interflora, by which I mean we might think even less of it and those radical poets who appeared on television recently singing the praises of one of the nation's biggest financial institutions in recession-battered austerity Britain would be well advised to avoid certain chat rooms and internet forums. But commissions are nothing new, especially if we consider the practice to be the contemporary equivalent of literary patronage and it's certainly one of the means by which poets of today manage to earn a crust. And on some occasions, the inclusion of commissioned works within a collection makes reasonable sense. For example, if the bespoke poems speak to the overall theme, or if a book is presented as a portfolio of work demonstrating the range of the author's interests, the diversity of their vocabulary, and their adaptability in the face of unexpected subject matter. Elsewhere though, figuring out how a contracted poetic assignment dovetails with what we would like to assume is the artfully constructed topic and sequencing of a collection is yet another duty that might fall to the reader, willingly or otherwise. And where it becomes necessary, readers can do worse then make a careful study of the prelims, notes, acknowledgements, end papers, and boilerplates of a slim volume where many of the book's terms and conditions will be tucked away. With this approach in mind, I want to look at Varney Capaldeo's The Magnificent Pigs of Thetford. It's the first poem in the seventh and final themed section of a 28 collection, Venus as a Bear. The book offers 
a further set of subdivisions in an index of places. It is intended as a guide. With the magnificent pigs of Thetford appearing under the Thetford-Norfolk heading in the England grouping. So as well as reading the book via its subject categories, retrospectively, we might also think of it as a map or gazetteer of influence and inspiration, the work of a well-traveled writer or restless imagination. Capaldeo thanks a couple of literary festivals, the locations of which correspond, correspond closely with several of her place-based poems, suggesting a spontaneous or adaptable or impressionable poet capable of writing en route, or a poet prepared and willing to write to order, or a poet whose wanderings conveniently or coincidentally match the purpose and direction of her current manuscript. No thanks, however, are offered to anyone or anything connected with either Thetford or with Norfolk, a very fine county where the poet has never lived, she tells us, though she has lived in other fens, which while not ruling out Lincolnshire and parts of Suffolk, seems more likely to indicate Cambridgeshire, Cambridge also featuring a couple of times in the book's sleeve notes. A vein of sarcasm runs through the magnificent pigs of Thetford. Sarcasm that sours into cynicism when what feels like a genuinely expressed liking for the geology, religious architecture, literature, takeaway cuisine and natural history of the region is undermined by suspicion and unease. The visitor becoming a self-conscious stranger surrounded by horizontal neighbours in one of the tweediest and most traditional and most county of the English counties. In a poem that makes a visual display of dodging any linear argument and whose principal strategic device is the non sequitur, that's an interpretation I arrived at by reading each of its two columns in isolation rather than hopscotching along the divide. And as far as such an approach is justifiable, it's the right-hand indented column which offers the most topical evidence and narrative traction. The one embarking in one man went to mow style, keying into the poem's recursive habits and its rural setting. Applying the same method to the left-aligned verses takes a closer to what I assume are the poem's origins, a poetry event in Liverpool's Blue Coat Gallery by the name of Doped in Stunned Mirages, a poetic celebration of Don Van Vliet. According to the internet, as part of a Captain Beefheart weekend in November 2017, 13 UK poets were invited to respond poetically to a Captain Beefheart album. Either by good luck or good judgment, Capaldeo was paired with Trout Mask Replica, a 1969 LP generally reckoned to be Beefheart's finest hour, or finest hour and a half, and one that has achieved a kind of cult status. So far, so good. And Capaldeo could hardly be accused of coyness or mystique in that respect. After Trout Mask Replica, Captain Beefheart, being the poem's subtitle or dedication. The, the Beefheart, and Beefheart being name-checked twice more in the body of the poem. Though beyond those initial signposts, navigation starts to get tricky. In relation to Trout Mask Replica, I used the term cult status a moment ago, which on one level, especially within the creative industries, is a badge of honor. But cult status also implies minority interest. And of the minority of the population who are interested in that album, myself included, 
Even fewer will be interested in China Pig, the muffled, fumbled, warbled jazz blues number that wouldn't be out of place on a wax cylinder with Ada Jones or on a double A side with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle speaking to us at 78 RPM from the dominion of the departed. The lyrics, so far as they are audible and comprehensible, tell of a china pig that might be part pet and part money box, part penis even. I put a fork in his back, croaks the good captain, and have forks stuck in their backs, perhaps in Thetford, says the poem. A sad contrast with Captain Beefheart's China Pig, says the poem. Though both song pig and poem pig appear to make the, meet the same fate at the end of a set of prongs. I suppose by this time, I feel I've done quite a lot of work on behalf of the poem. Reading, thinking, rereading, listening, googling, and although I'm enjoying the playful relationship between the Thetford pigs on one hand and the poetic deconstruction of Fenland Britain on the other, I can't quite get the beef heart elements of the poem to bridge the gap, specifically in relation to the song China Pig. It's about how fragile a human being is as opposed to all the forces, said Van Vliet himself helpfully or otherwise. Though most commentators seem to agree that beyond the typically weird Beefheartian delivery, it's an unusually straightforward ditty about selling out or sacrificing what is personal or sentimental in order to service the more utilitarian and necessary aspects of life. Given the song's overt presence in the poem, the idea of sacrifice feels important. And with some effort, I can apply it to the political and cultural subtexts of the right-hand column, though less successfully to the swine on the left, Orwellian at times, straight out of a Larson comic strip at others. This poem is a Captain Beefheart tribute, but I can't say it has nothing to do with Thetford, the poem states, apparently with some frankness, but more teasingly in reality, presumably gesturing to us that the tribute has a great deal to do with Thetford. But what? I'm not asking to be spoon-fed. No one departs on a poetic adventure in search of the featureless and the insipid. What I do want, though, is to share the poet's excitement when connections have been made and for those connections to be communicated to me without having to go on a treasure hunt. In those terms, I've also pinned down the relevance or provenance of the quatrain beginning, I've fallen to bits, presented in the poem as a quote, or from earlier in the poem, to confidently interpret those three sections beginning black, yellow, and red. Though I did eventually stumble on this painting by Van Vliet himself, entitled China Pig, which includes the aforementioned hues, but no helicopter, as far as I can make out, and no pianist frigging his dog. The significance of the latter might be common knowledge among beef art aficionados, given the legends and myths that swirl around Van Vliet and swirl most furiously around the recording of Trout Mask Replica. But after an afternoon of typing Pianist Friggs's Dog <laughs> into a search engine, I decided that ignorance was preferable to the astonishing images <laughs> accumulating in my search history. <laughs> I'll have another look one day on somebody else's computer. <laughs> as the painting confirms, and as anyone who has subjected themselves to sustained quantities of the music of Captain Beefheart and his magic band will have discovered, 
Van Vliet was a certified surrealist. So I could listen to an argument that says the poem meets like with like. Though I suspect both Capaldeo and the magnificent pigs of Thetford are better than that. I feel it to be a poem of engineered intentions and plotted purposes. A poem whose calibrated machineries I would like to experience rather than descend into the inspection pit and peer up into its undercarriage with a torch in one hand and instruction manual in the other. Perhaps it's the case that the printed form represents a secondary or ancillary version of the poem, a poem written for Beefheart nuts to be read out at a Beefheart celebration and presented within a Beefheartian context with all the accompanying patter and preamble. Maybe you had to be there. And a PS on this poem, I like it a lot. And with just a little help, I feel I could have liked it even more. Both topographically and stylistically, it puts me in mind of Anna Kalutha in Suffolk by Oliver Reynolds from his 1985 debut collection, Skevington's Daughter. Set in the small towns of the east of England and describing a random romantic encounter between the speaker of the poem and the woman of its title, each of its four stanzas ends with the following single line, single sentence statements. The hatchback is easier to load Boycott had just scored his hundredth hundred. In Walberswick, I went to the dentists and bulk orders are on the up. I could, if forced, relate the content of those declarations to the general thrust of the piece, but in a poem that throws in the nom de plume of the Reverend John Galbraith Graham, crossword setter for the Guardian and no stranger himself to Fenland geography, the cryptic takes precedence over the literal. And the clue, as it turns out, is in the title. Anna Kalutha, the person, being a homophone for the pluralized grammatical term describing discontinuities, discontinuities of logic or narrative within a text. So the poem defines its constituency as those people of a riddling sensibility who are familiar with that precise word. It's a clever poem, and either you're in on its cleverness or you're not. Anna Kalutha, Anna Kalutha. Get it? To summarise, by way of a recap, poetry is a vertical art. It's verticality extending from orchestrated line endings and managed intervals. In dispensing with form and formula and without any meaningful frameworks or scaffolding to support its structures, poetry has, in spirit at least, tended more recently towards the horizontalness of prose, by which I mean it has become a less pressurized activity, taking place in an unlimited space. To shore up its standing, standing in the wider senses of the word, the intriguing consequences of pattern and shape have been replaced by specialist knowledge, a poor substitution since the effects of structure, no matter how covert, are always involving and engaging at both the aural and visual level, whereas classified intelligence and restricted understanding tend to exclude and alienate. This slow but discernible shift has led to a kind of poetry that in some circles is now the norm, i.e. a poetry housed in its own Faraday cage, insulated against any external probing and contact, or at its most extreme, a poetry situated at Point Nemo, notionally the most inaccessible coordinate on the planet's surface. Poetry is not one thing but many, 
and long may that be the case. But the elusive golden standard remains an intensified version of language that offers the best opportunity for reflection and scrutiny while being ingeniously clear, effortlessly fluent, powerfully communicative, successful in its intentions, aware of its causes and effects, wide in entreaty and glorious in consequence. Language is the greatest tool ever devised by the human brain. Obscurity is a betrayal of its expert and exquisite functionality. And to be opaque in poetry, either deliberately or through lack of talent, is to take this most precious and precise of instruments and to use it as a delivery mechanism for white noise or pepper spray. The greatest art requires the least explanation. Discuss.